Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. I'm glad you could be with us for Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. This is a monumentally important day at the United States Supreme Court, where the court will take up Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. It's the Mississippi case, which uh, will challenge or will affirm, uh, first, Mississippi's law, which um, establishes 15 weeks as the period after which women are not allowed to get an abortion. But more specifically, Mississippi in this case has said to the court, we want this to be used as an opportunity to once and for all overturn Roe v. Wade. We're going to talk about that case extensively, about its significance in terms of Georgia's abortion law. Um, We're talking a little bit about putting it in the context of the history of abortion law in the country and much more with our panel today. I'm going to introduce the whole panel, but for the first couple minutes of the show, I do think it's important that we talk a little bit about a couple of the mayoral elections, which were resolved in runoff elections last night. So let me introduce everybody, and we'll move forward. It's Wednesday, which means Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and apparently now a sideline reporter uh, at the uh, <laughs> SEC championship game on Saturday afternoon. Bluestein, you find your way into all the big events. <laughs> I've, I've been lucky enough to be able to be a photo runner for some of those those big games, and I will be there on Saturday rooting, well, helping our photographers uh, – <laughs> capture the news and not moving on the yeah. dogs. <laughs> yeah, okay. UGA graduate Greg Bluestein finds a way into uh, the event. Karen Owen is with us as well. Of course, she's a political science professor at the University of West Georgia. And we should say, Karen, that I suppose it is relevant that a great deal of the work you've done looks at women in American politics, um, the election of women, the difficulties that women experience in uh, electoral politics. And so I'm particularly glad you're with us today. Thanks for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. Um, we're also joined today uh, by Subhasri Narasimhan. Um, Subhasri, you, um, in addition to uh, your work as a professor of global health at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory, you did your postdoctoral fellowship um, in um, women's health issues, in researching women's health issues. So abortion has always been an issue of great importance to you. Have I, is that a correct way to say it? Yeah, um, I uh, primarily focused on the implications of bans like Georgia's six-week ban on the health of individuals in the state. Well, then we're very glad to have you here as well. Um, And we're joined by Randy Beck, professor of constitutional law at the University of Georgia. Um, Randy, you you have a pretty distinguished career at UGA. I know you've been named at least a couple of times as the top teacher at the law school. You go back a long ways with the United States Supreme Court. You were actually a clerk for Justice Kennedy as you were getting your career underway, Yes. Yes, that was uh, one of the, the great honors and a uh, wonderful year. He was just a fabulous boss and uh, a great year. 
Well, thank you so much for being with us. As I said, we're going to start talking about the Supreme Court case in just a minute. But let's start. Greg Bluestein, Andre Dickens, uh, who was far behind Felicia Moore at the end of the general election, but whose the momentum just shifted in his dra- uh, direction dramatically. Let's listen just briefly to what he said, part of what he said to his crowd, and then just talk about its impact. We need to capture the spirit of Atlanta in this very moment that we have, a future that has one city with one vision, one city with one vision, one future, a future that restores Atlanta to that shining city on a hill. Greg Bluestein, Andre Dickens has been part of Atlanta politics for some time, but there's this sense in which he brings a fresh energy uh, to uh, the job that he's about to take on, yes? Yeah, and you could hear the passion in his voice. That was he, he gave maybe a 20-minute victory speech, and throughout that speech, there was just energy, excitement. He was dancing. He was celebrating. It was a real celebration last night. Um, and I think to the national media, there was a lot of talk about a stunner. This was the stunning upset because he, he came in a, a distant second place to, to Felicia Moore in the first round of voting. But to those of us in Atlanta, um, he had all the makings of, a, of, of I didn't think it would be this big of a blowout, but he had all the makings of a victory in the weeks leading up to this race with the endorsements and the energy and the enthusiasm and the big crowds. And every, all signs were pointing to an Andre Dickens victory. Karen, uh, both he and Felicia Moore obviously made public safety and getting crime in Atlanta under control as their primary issue. Um, They had slightly different approaches, but it is certainly going to be the first and foremost challenge facing Dickens as the incoming mayor when he takes office. Yes, absolutely. I mean, for most of Atlanta residents, this was the issue that they were going to to listen to the candidates about and wanted to select someone that would really handle public safety. As Greg mentioned, you know, the national folks watching Atlanta may think this is a stunner. And that's usually because in runoff, whoever is at the lead and going in is the one who typically wins. We've seen here in Georgia recently, though, that's changing, that that person who finishes in second place actually comes out ahead. I think in the Atlanta race, we have to also be um, cognizant of the fact that turnout was low. Um, I think you had a drop off of more than 20,000 voters from that first election and the first of November. So, you know, it was really about ground game. And I think Dickens really pushed that momentum, his messaging. It seems like he had more money, too, to get out and really show Mm -hmm. what he wanted to do. And that has an impact. Voters were listening. And you've got to in any runoff, you've got to get your voters to the polls. And he did that. Just a couple of other points before we move on. Greg, one of the things that was striking last night was that Felicia Moore and Andre Dickens actually exchanged respectful messages. Felicia Moore was able to accept defeat with a certain amount of grace, something in short supply in electoral politics these days. Yeah, there is a concession speech, and and maybe in part of it was because it was so it was such a big uh, defeat, right? I mean, it, it wasn't very close, and we knew probably around 9 p.m. that this race was kind of over. Um, but also, you know, it just speaks to both the, the characters of both those politicians that even though it was a, a rough and tumble campaign with 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 very vigorous uh, campaigning, they both have mutual respect for each other and and are, and are, and are, are willing to talk and, and be bridge builders with each other. I want to, one other note before we move to the Supreme Court. Uh, we should mention that Cosby Johnson, a young African-American political activist down in Brunswick, won that mayor's uh, runoff. And, and Karen, uh, significantly there, 
Um, we've talked on this show numerous times since the verdict in the trial about Brunswick looking to turn the page. And Cosby Johnson, again, young, energetic, activist in political uh, affairs down there. He was active in, in working toward getting uh, uh, the legislature to pass the hate crimes bill. This is definitely a big effort to turn the page. Absolutely. And I think it shows, too, that we are seeing in a lot of our local elections, a lot of young energy, new faces, new candidates wanting to get in because they want to have an impact in their local community and change the narrative and change the scene of which we're living. And so Brunswick is kind of those residents. It's been a really tough year. And I think this is a kind of a new start. And he, you know, mobilized really well on some very central um, points for that community, which is economic development and education. And so I think it's a, a real fresh start that we'll see in the state. There were other municipal elections, I think, too, where there's been a change. Um, so it's just showing that the, the community, there's a lot of energy to get now involved locally in, in politics. We'll be talking more about local elections in, on the show in the next few days, but we really do want to turn to this extraordinary Supreme Court hearing today. Randy Beck, uh, I'm going to start with you, if, if I may. Um, I'm no lawyer. I'm certainly no constitutional law expert, as you are. So I'm going to try to get all this right, but I'll, I'll be glad to be corrected if I don't. So if I can, let me set the stage. Um, we, we have we, the two... Supreme Court decisions that have a certain relevance, I think, here are, of course, the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which um, made uh, a, a woman's right to choose abortion the law of the land, superseding all the states that had in the past forbidden abortions. But then there's also the 19, what, 92 uh, case of Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which comes into play here, because, um, Randy, it was Casey that established viability as the standard after which a woman was not entitled to get an abortion. Uh, right so far? Well, uh, let me get a little more technical. Um, Roe okay. actually was the place where the court established the viability line, but they did it as part of what has been called a trimester framework. And so they said mm. there's a right to abortion. States can't regulate in the first trimester. They can regulate for medical reasons in the second trimester. And then after viability, essentially at the third trimester at that point, states could prohibit abortion. So when Casey came along, they got rid of the trimester framework, but they held on to the viability line. So what's at stake here today, Mississippi has a 15-week uh, ban. You cannot get an abortion, according to that law, after 15 weeks. But, Subasri, what Mississippi is really asking the court to do today is not just validate their 15-week uh, ban, but to overturn Roe, period. Yes? Uh, yes. Um, and, you know, Planned Parenthood versus Casey also established the undue burden uh, clause, which has been hotly debated among states. And, and what you see is, um, if Mississippi, if the 15-week ban in Mississippi is upheld and Roe is overturned, you know, there are a significant amount of states that have pre-1973, uh, pre-Roe bans. There's also a significant number of states, I believe around 15, that have what's called trigger bans, which means that um, all abortion would cease in the state um, 
uh, despite without any other types of rulings. It would be sort of immediate. And um, Georgia is one of those states that has a trigger ban. Would you explain to our listeners what you mean about an, about undue burden? So that's a tricky question, and I think we may have to also ask uh, the constitutional scholar here. Um, undue burden uh, really has been varied by state to state, and what we see is is these kinds of abortion bans disproportionately affect low income and minority people. In fact, you know some recent work out of Rise, the center I work in, has shown that. Uh, uh, bans, even the current 22-week gestational age bans that are in the states, um, put a disproportionate uh, burden on Black women and Black people who can become pregnant. So it doesn't necessarily reduce the number of abortions. It just um, makes it more difficult for certain groups to obtain those abortions. Randy? Yeah, so undue burden is the test that the court applies when it is looking at pre-viability regulations uh, under the Casey framework. Um, And so in this case, they're going to consider whether the viability line should continue to be controlling. Um, But there are a lot of things that they could do if they decide that it isn't. There are lots of directions they could go. So we don't know for sure whether the undue burden language would still be significant, uh, even if they throw out viability as the controlling line in pregnancy. Um, I want to come back to that in a minute, because I I think you believe that this court is not likely to overturn Roe, at least with the the case that's before it right now. But we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Karen and Greg, I think we should set this in the larger political framework. Um, When he uh, ran for president in 2016, Donald Trump uh, promised that he would nominate Supreme Court justices who would vote to end the constitutional right to an abortion. And of course, we all know that he ended up having three uh, seats on the court to fill, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. And one of the reasons we're seeing the court is now suddenly getting these cases. They got Texas uh, last month or so. Uh, They got Mississippi now. There are others headed there. It's because of a feeling among those who want to see Roe overturned that this is the court that will do it. Karen? You're right. So the Republican Party really was looking for a candidate that would push that exact thing, a pro-life type of jurist. And I think in this situation, though, we, if we look at the confirmation hearing of each of the three, you know, there was all this discussion about that they would, a row would set precedent and they'd have to evaluate cases as they came. I think one thing that we know is there were at least four that we're willing to take this case and hear it. And so that's kind of where we're at now. I think interesting in the last year or so, and the professor would know a little bit more about the the jurist here, but, um, you know, Kavanaugh has made some points in conversations of his questioning and different things about, you know, was he willing to overturn certain precedents and what a standard would be for him to do that. If we think about Amy Coney Barrett, you know, there was a lot of concern when she was in her nomination about her um, willingness to maybe examine Roe over Turn Road, especially considering the left thought she was replacing or was taking the seat of Ginsburg, which, again, was controversial, whether these are actually people's seats um, or, you know, our citizen seats. So um, I think there's a lot of, of looking at these three new justices to see how they will um, question today the lawyers and understand more about the case. 
Greg, weigh in. Yeah, and I think it's also instructive in the state level how, you know, what was the first major piece of legislation that Governor Brian Kemp took up in 2019 after he was elected? It was, uh, you know, an attempt to ban most abortions in Georgia. And this was after more than a decade of, of Republican governors really skirting the issue or, 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 or not really addressing it or embracing it as, as vigorously as, as Governor Kemp did. So um, clearly, uh, you know, they're, they're, that was a reflection of the mood of the electorate, in, 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 at least in Kemp's view, that he always said that, hey, I was elected because conservative voters wanted to essentially outright ban or come close to banning abortion, and he was fulfilling that promise. So there's that sort of grassroots push that hasn't gone away, um, even as uh, these court cases still continue. Randy, um, you have written extensively uh, about the issue of viability, how the courts have decided it in the past about abortion and the Constitution itself. And we should make sure our listeners know you actually uh, wrote an amicus brief uh, uh, on for this case before the Supreme Court. And, and you, in that brief, and again, correct me if I'm not quite right, but in that brief, you don't address Roe as much as you do the issue of how the court decided, I think, Casey and viability and your concerns about that. Yes? Yeah. So um, I think you need to disentangle two distinct issues. One is, is there a constitutional right to abortion? Um, that can be debated on its, its own. And then a second issue is the duration. How long in pregnancy does that right to abortion last? Um, those can be put together. The court addressed both of them in Roe and in Casey, but you can view them as separate issues. And so the amicus brief I submitted basically took a look only at the issue of the duration of abortion rights. Um, I did not join in uh, the arguments about whether Roe was rightly decided, uh, but simply focused on how long the right to pregnancy should last. Um, so if you don't mind, I'm going to read some of your own words to you. Um, you, said, you. You said the rule forbidding state proscription of pre-viability abortions fails to satisfy a principle embraced by the majority in Planned Parenthood versus uh, Casey. Uh, the court has never justified its extreme rule forbidding states from protecting the life of any fetus prior to viability. And you go on from there. So expand on that, and then I want to ask Subasri uh, to uh, weigh in on that as well. Randy? Yeah. So in, <clears throat> in Roe, uh, the court did not have to answer the question of how long the right to abortion lasts. The statute in that case uh, regulated abortion from the outset of pregnancy. And so the justices have realized we don't have to draw any line to answer the question in this case. But they decided to do it anyway. Um, and uh, that, I think, was probably a mistake. Um, the court uh, recognizes that it's, it's often a bad idea to resolve hypothetical questions because it doesn't have in front of it a clear record with all the factual information relevant to the question. It doesn't have arguments from the parties. Uh, but in Roe, the court decided to go ahead and resolve the issue of the duration of abortion rights and said that the state couldn't regulate to protect fetal life before a fetus becomes viable, before it can survive outside the womb. 
Um, and I think uh, they have never given an explanation, and particularly not one tied to the Constitution, about why states can't regulate before that point. That's fairly late in pregnancy compared to other countries. A lot of countries that have abortion rights regimes uh, will allow abortion in the first 12 weeks. Um, at the time of Roe, viability was 28 weeks. By the time of Casey, it was 23 or 24 weeks but still much further into pregnancy than, than most countries that have a regime of abortion rights. Um, and they have never explained why the Constitution compels that result. Subhas, we talk about uh, viability. I mean, you did your, as, as I said, uh, your postdoctoral fellowship was at the Emory Center for Reproductive Health Research. So how do you look at the issue of viability and the standards and what they mean to women in real life? So. No. The way that that we look at um, abortion bans is from a public health standpoint, and there is no evidence that abortion bans have any uh, benefit to individuals. In fact, um, part of the Roe standard was so that um, a person who's pregnant can make these decisions within the privacy of their own family, within the privacy of their own medical appointments. And there are a lot of gray areas in making decisions around um, uh, uh, procuring an abortion, and these these decisions are widely varied, you know, based on on the case. But um, the preponderance of public health research just shows that abortion bans have absolutely no public health benefit. And so we can, you know, debate the question of viability, and that's what the courts do. But um, in terms of from a public health standpoint, these, um, you know, these abortion bans are are. Oh, overall bad, you know, for, for people and for the health of, of people within states. Um, Subhasri, before we move on, um, when you say there's no evidence that uh, it, in terms of health uh, ab about these bans, what does that mean that there's no impact um, on, on women? What do you, what, what do you have to, well, to use these, as your proving bans, ground for that? So what we're saying is these bans increase negative health outcomes. And so there's been recent work uh, done by my colleague Sarah Red that's shown that um, that uh, you know black people who can become pregnant who live in restrictive abortion states have higher rates of preterm birth. Um, these bans in other countries where they're heavily um, where abortion is heavily regulated is also tied to higher rates of maternal mortality. And maternal mortality in the state of Georgia is something that we really need to consider. And so what I'm saying is that there is no uh, public health evidence that these bans are good for health in any way. Uh, okay. Karen? Well, I think, you know, your points about the, you know, the safety pieces of this are very important in the discussion, right? So how are women protected um, their health care taken care of in this situation. And I think there, you know, I learned each, I learn each semester as I teach intro to American government that we discuss what we consider controversial issues or the wedge issues in politics and abortion is always brought up. And I would say in the last, you know, eight years of my career, the discussion has changed so much amongst the students. Even this semester, I had women in my class even actually ask me what an abortion is. Could I explain it medically? And then, of course, I have to say, no, I'm a political scientist, not an actual biological scientist. So that, I don't think I have the credentials <laughs> to explain it. But 
there's even young women, 18 to 22, that don't understand the full scope of this issue. They know it's political and it divides people, but they don't understand really what I think, you know, our panel is talking about is the, the public health implications, the idea of when a baby is viable. They just hear it as pro-choice. Women have a, a decision to make or that there's this, uh, you know, discussion on pro-life. And so for our audiences, I think we need to think about that. Voters, young people are voting um, in the democratic process, thinking about candidates who are running on this, but do they fully understand all the implications of this issue? Greg Bluestein, um, you mentioned Georgia and our very restrictive abortion law. I think I'm correct that if, if Roe were overturned, there are 21 states that have, uh, that can put into effect laws that would dramatically reduce the rights of women uh, or the, to have access uh, to abortion. Uh, there's no, no getting away from the politics of that. No, there's not. And, and remember, Georgia was one of those states that was going to go um, maybe a step back into it's what they ended up doing. They were going to pass a trigger law, which would have been joining one of those states that said, hey, if a Roe v. Wade was overturned, Georgia would also outlaw abortions. But then went a step further um, after some serious pushback, I think, from, from conservatives who said, hey, this is why we elected you, Governor Kemp. We, 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 we wanted you to fulfill your promise to, to pass the nation's strictest abortion law. And so he kind of relented on the, on the trigger law aspect and then went a step further in a way and, and adopted um, this, what they call the heartbeat bill. Um, and uh, so I, I do think that's, that was part of, the, part of the promise there. Randy? So, um, you know, I think it's interesting to think about how Roe and Casey have affected the politics of abortion. I think um, politics has, has, uh, has changed as a result of those decisions. Um, and one of the things that I think that they do is that they push politicians towards more extreme positions. Um, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, famously before she was on the court, uh, said that heavy-handed judicial intervention in Roe was difficult to justify and appears to have provoked, not resolved, conflict. Um, there's a sense in which what Roe did is it took uh, the abortion issue out of the normal political processes that we use to resolve important disputes in this country and said most of the time the courts are going to resolve the important issues. So for politicians, votes on abortion legislation became largely symbolic, right? They could appeal to their base without having to worry about the consequences of particular legislation because they expected the courts to step in and, and overturn it. Uh, that is really an important point, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more. We've got to get to a break, but here's the most important thing I'd like to do right after the break. I, I'd like to get a sense from you, and Randy, I think I'll start with you on it when we come back. What exactly do we anticipate the court is going to have before it today? How, you know, we don't know. We won't know a, a ruling on this until next spring. But what exactly is at stake? Is Roe at stake? Is a different viability standard at stake? I think those are important to discuss, and we'll do that when we come back from our first break of the show. <laughs>
We're joined today by Subhasri Narasimhan, who is at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, Randy Beck, professor of constitutional law at the University of Georgia, our friend Karen Owen, political science professor at the University of West Georgia, and of course, Greg Bluestein, political reporter at the AJC. Randy, what do you believe is actually at stake as the court hears the Mississippi case today? So, as I mentioned earlier, we can disentangle the question of whether there is a right to abortion protected by the Constitution from the question of how long in pregnancy it lasts. What the court agreed to hear in this case was simply the second question, the durational question. The, the question that they said they wanted to hear uh, presented was whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Now, when Mississippi filed its brief in the case, they actually asked the court to go much further. They asked the court to get to the first question of whether there is a particularly protected constitutional right to abortion, but uh, the court has not said that it wants to hear that question. It's only focused so far on the durational question. Now, could the court take up Mississippi's um, request to overturn Roe and Casey? Sure, they could in theory, Um, and I suspect there will be some justices who will want to do that. Uh, But I'm not convinced that a majority of the court will be willing to do that in this case. Um, If you look at Chief Justice Roberts' time uh, leading the court, he has a kind of a minimalist judicial philosophy, particularly in controversial cases. He likes to resolve cases on as narrow of grounds as possible, in part so that he can increase the number of justices who sign on to an opinion. Um, And I think there's good evidence that Justice Barrett and Justice Kavanaugh kind of agree with him on that. Uh, There was a case last year, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, that presented similar dynamics. And Justice uh, Barrett wrote a concurring opinion joined by Justice Kavanaugh and Justice uh, Breyer, arguing that they should take the case, uh, 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 take a narrow case-by-case approach instead of kind of just rewriting the law of free exercise. So I kind of expect the court to take a similar approach here, address only the question that was presented to them uh, and that they agreed to hear. So given that, Karen, uh, Roberts has been the pivot point uh, for the court for for quite a while now, at, at least before the three conservatives all came on the court. And, and so Randy makes an excellent point that his kind of view that we should have a narrow approach, which in some cases has been seconded by the, uh, the newer members, is fine. But I think I'm right that suddenly the pivot point may be moving to Clarence Thomas, whose conservative views are starting to gain uh, support. He's building uh, a support from, the, uh, from other justices uh, right now. I think that's true, and he's one of the, of course, longest-serving members of the court, so he has the ability to discuss things that historically have happened within the cases. I would be interesting, you know, to ask the professor, since he clerked for Kennedy, um, and Kavanaugh was with Kennedy, if there will be some movement in this kind of, you know, women's rights and this abortion, since Kennedy was a lot of times one of these really swing Uh, votes on the court, if we could perceive that maybe Kavanaugh may want to take into that lane or if he's trying to make his own. Um, I think that's an interesting place today. We could listen in on the questionings and see if that's occurring. Yeah, I think there's a strong case to be made that the most influential justice on the court is not 
the one on one end or the other, but the one in the middle, the one who is most likely to switch, because then you find uh, the parties arguing to that justice, hoping that they can get that justice to, to uh, sign on to their cause. Um, Justice Kennedy was the swing justice for a period of time. Before him, Justice O'Connor was the swing justice. And I think there's good reason to think that Justice Kavanaugh is in that role now. Um, and so um, he probably, you know, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts used to be kind of the swing justice, but you see him in five to four decisions. Um, he is often on the side of the three Democratic appointees. Um, and so um, I think Kavanaugh is kind of the the case-by-case case swing justice who, whose vote people will be trying to get. Um, Subhasri, um, you've already uh, addressed this to an extent, but if, if, even if Randy's correct that the court decides to uh, take a narrower approach and doesn't decide to take up Mississippi's challenge that they overturn Roe, um, the fact of the matter is that those who are arguing against Mississippi's uh, position in this are saying that even if you do nothing more than uphold Mississippi's 15-week ban, uh, you are doing uh, irreparable harm to the women of that state. Absolutely. I mean, um, we see the the Mississippi upholding the Mississippi ban also opens the floodgates for more restrictive um, abortion bans to be introduced in states or for um, the challenges to be made again at the state level for um, six-week abortion bans. And again, I'm going to reiterate this. You know, I uh, look at the health of individuals and these bans, as you narrow the scope of gestational age, only um, impact health negatively. When we look internationally at countries where um, uh, abortion bans are much more restrictive or stricter, you know, we find that um, it's not an abstract idea that health gets worse, that more unsafe um, abortions are performed or more self-management happens. You know, this is, it's important to remember that whatever the court decides, this affects both the health of scores of women across the country, scores of people who can become pregnant, and it also, you know, affects um, the people who provide health care for them. And uh, what we're also thinking, and not in the abstract, is that you will then force people who may not want to carry a pregnancy to term, they will have to now carry this pregnancy to term and raise a child. You know, and so this is not an abstract idea. This is a really serious concept that affects the health of women in Georgia, of people who can become pregnant across the country. Greg, Randy Beck made a really important point before the break about the politics of this. First of all, we know that most polling shows that uh, American people, by a, by a, a margin, a some, something of, a, of a, a small margin, support the right to choose for the most part. Um, but he, the point that he made that's so important here is, if for some reason Roe is overturned, it becomes the responsibility of states to decide what to do about abortion. Now, Georgia has already ruled, uh, has already decided it wants a six-week ban. But all of a sudden, politicians who have been able to hide behind court decisions are going to have to stake out positions that they'll have to answer to their constituents for. 
And that was a really great point the professor made because I've talked to lawmakers who privately say, hey, you know, there's no consequence to, to voting on that 2019 legislation, even if they had severe, serious concerns with it. Um, because they said that, look, the, you know, the courts will, 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 will strike it down and, and I will avoid a primary challenge, which is exactly what would have happened um, if some of these lawmakers, Republican lawmakers, had voted against it or abstained from voting. Um, but now we're going headlong into a 2022 election year legislative session where we have Republican lawmakers running statewide who are facing very stiff primary challenges themselves. And we've already seen the Senate Republican leader, Butch Miller, promise that he would take up legislation that would either mirror Mississippi or Texas law or, or try to um, uh, try to uh, account for whatever the Supreme Court ruling will come down. Um, and so you're going to see this debate come back in when I think in 2019 lawmakers thought it was it was kind of done and dusted. So, um, uh, Karen, uh, let's pick up on that point. Um, because we're likely what we usually see the Supreme Court issue its rulings in the spring. It's 2022. It's the spring. They issue a ruling on Mississippi and all of a sudden, wham, it lands in the middle of a hotly contested uh, election. So for Georgians, we may really be, or the Republicans, I should say, in the primaries in Georgia will probably be hoping that this will be the case that comes out the last day that the Supreme Court issues its opinions, which would be in June, right? And so we would be through the primary season here, and then they would just be countering it to the general election against the Democrats. So that's probably what they're hopeful for. I think with a case this significant, I can't see that it being on the first list coming out of the court in the spring. But, of course, you can't always predict things going in. I would say, too, um, you know, Greg's point here, even in the primaries, it's going to be an issue discussed. But how willing are um, Republicans to listen to constituents and their actual opinions on this issue? If you look nationally, women are, in in general, um, over like 60 percent of women support legally in some cases for abortion. And then if you even start to break it down by party ID and ideology, moderate Republicans support a legal abortion in some cases. And so we're talking about here in Georgia a lot about, you know, women voters, suburban voters, these young voters. If Republicans want to get them back into their column, This may not be the issue they really want to be pushing hard. It will be effective in a primary, certainly, right, if you're trying to be really extreme and get out of base, and really your evangelical base at that point. But if you really want to turn to the general, I think they have to be careful when we're just seeing such a change in the last three to four years about the acceptance of the idea that there are some instances when abortion needs to be available and legal. Uh, Subhatri, you want to jump in? Yeah, and I just want to also reiterate that, you know, this kind of political football, even the whiff or the hint that these um, these bans might come down in a state um, impacts the way that people uh, actually believe that they can access their health care. So this these bans don't even have to be contested in the legislature. They don't have to be um you know, like they don't actually have to be put in place for people to worry that they are unable to access their the reproductive health care they need. All right. Uh, Randy, give us some insight, if you can, 
How, how does the court decide which cases they'll release when uh, in, in the session? It, it does seem like the really significant cases tend to come later. Would you anticipate that would be likely to happen with this Mississippi case? Yes, I think this will probably come out like the last week that the court releases cases. Um, I think it's just in part a function of how many justices are probably going to want to write separate opinions. And so mm-hmm. you'll have somebody draft the majority opinion that will get circulated, uh, and then several justices will write dissents or concurring opinions. And, uh, and so it just takes a long time to get all of those circulated people to adjust their opinions in response to points that other justices are making and, and then release it. Um, and so I, I would expect this to come out in June sometime. So um, with this, you know, all of a sudden we have any number of justices of the Supreme Court arguing in public that they should not be interpreted as making decisions based on politics. But given the timetable that Karen laid out for us, is there reason to think, Randy, that it is possible the court will consider an election year in when it releases this decision? So I think that the court may make decisions about timing um, in part to reduce the impact on politics. In other words, sometimes right. they will uh, you know, delay a decision or release it early because they don't want to have an impact on the political process. Okay. Um, and, of course, primaries take place at varying times on the calendar, so it's not as if there's a, a national standard for that. Let's get the final break of the show out of the way. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit more specifically about where Georgia fits in to all of this. Uh, we'll do that after these messages. Greg Bluestein, you already uh, reminded us that Georgia has a six-week abortion ban, which has been stayed now by a federal court, uh, anticipating more action on on uh, other cases that would end up going uh, up in this uh, to the Supreme Court eventually. And you pointed out that there's actually going to be a movement in January, probably to uh, introduce a bill like Texas, which will essentially deputize residents, citizens, not even of Texas necessarily, but of anywhere in the country, to blow the whistle on people who aid in an abortion. Um, So it doesn't feel like the Republican legislature right now is um, really beholden to what happens in the Supreme Court unless they overturn Roe. No, and again, this was an issue that Republicans privately thought was kind of was was kind of uh, settled uh, in 2019 after they passed the so-called heartbeat ban, and uh, now uh, it's coming back up in a major way in election year. The question is whether or not House Speaker David Ralston, Governor Brian Kemp, other legislative leaders actually support this, or whether or not it's just a proposal that Butch Miller will push forward uh, as part of his lieutenant gubernatorial campaign. And then, you know, have some hearings and then let it let it go. And, and that's what we're still not sure yet is how much political capital is really going to be behind this. Uh, Randy, what is the impact of whatever the court does on uh, Mississippi? Where does Georgia stand in that with our heartbeat law? So it depends on what exactly the court writes. But chances right. are that the 11th Circuit, um, if the court upholds the Mississippi legislation, says, Viability is not the correct line. Um, it may well kind of leave the the actual line unsettled 
for litigation in the lower courts. And so uh, if they did that, then the 11th Circuit would have to make a decision about whether a six-week ban is, is permissible and give arguments about what one way or the other. Uh, similar litigation would presumably go on in other parts of the country, and eventually a circuit split would result that would lead to another Supreme Court decision um, trying to decide whether there is uh, another line other than viability that they're more comfortable with. So uh, the court has already heard Texas, right? They already have that in the breast of the court right now. The the court has heard the Texas case, but the issues that they are resolving there are more procedural in nature about who can be sued in what circumstances. Um, and so it doesn't really bring the merits of Texas six-week abortion uh, law before the court. But, but Karen, it does provide another barricade if Republicans in the legislature want to go ahead and pass uh, a Texas-like law here, uh, they could say, well, you know, we'll let the courts make the final decision on that. We're just doing what our constituents want. Well, I think the Republicans will have to pay attention to how the court actually addresses that enforcement or who can sue type of issue from the Texas mm-hmm. law and whether they can really pursue it or if it's just going to get entangled again in the courts, which may be coverage that they're seeking I think the valid point there on the Georgia legislature is what Greg mentioned about the speaker. And it's historically in Georgia, our speakers have been careful with social issues. They have tried not to bring these really controversial social issues to the forefront and have all these stances that can therefore affect the entire state. And I think it will be what is the power that Ralston has over minimizing some of this impact in the House? Can he then can control the caucus to not want to actually pursue it further? I think that will be the testing ground really here in Georgia in the session. Subastro, you've already made the point that you don't have to have a law passed for it to have a damaging impact on, on women. Um, what Do you have data that show what the impact of Georgia's law, despite the fact it stayed right now, abortion is legal for right now in Georgia, has it had an impact on, on Georgia, women? Well, anecdotally, what we know is that there were significant numbers of calls um, into both clinics and um, and to abortion funds or groups that that uh, supply additional funding to for necessary procedures. Um, uh, calling to ask if abortion was still legal in Georgia, and that happens every time a new ban is introduced. And we can use SB eight uh, in Texas as a as basically just a an example of what's what happens when you uphold a law like that. Uh, 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 pregnant people are traveling hundreds of miles and outside of the state in order to receive their necessary health care. And um, what we are also, you know, contending with here is this idea of, you know, who might be deputized, who can report on who. We're creating a, a culture of surveillance, essentially, um, and also a, a um, and also just um, compounding fear and stigma around uh, procuring a necessary health care procedure. Randy? So uh, the enforcement mechanism in SB8, the Texas law, uh, is unusual to us. Usually a state will have state officials enforcing a law. Um, In this case, they wanted to avoid that so that it would be harder for people to get a pre-enforcement challenge to the law before a court. And so they provided for 
individuals to sue to enforce the law. But that, that's something that was very common in this country and in England uh, for hundreds of years, but it's unusual today. I think it's really a bad idea, and I think the Texas, even the pro-life legislators, are going to uh, really regret it if the law ever uh, takes full force. Okay. We are just about out of time, but Randy, as we do this show live uh, in the morning, uh, it's about five minutes before 10. The court is going to convene at 10 o'clock. I, we, people can listen to the arguments. Randy, are you going to be listening and reading the tea leaves? Do you imagine the questions that the, that the justices ask will give us any idea of where they stand on this? I think you can often discern what issues are in a justice's thinking by the questions that they ask. And so I think it will be important to to focus on, for instance, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett. Um, Are they asking questions about the validity of Roe and Casey um, and the right to abortion, or are they... asking questions focused on viability and the duration of abortion rights, that may be a good clue to their, their thinking. I got to tell you, thank you all for a, just a wonderful, rich conversation about what we're looking at as we move forward with the Supreme Court case and just the issue of abortion in general. Uh, uh, so Subasri, Randy, Karen, Greg, thank you so much for being with us for this conversation uh, today. As we've been doing all week, and, and because I know that I'm not alone in feeling that last Friday we lost one of the greatest artists of the second half of the 20th century when Stephen Sondheim died, we've been closing the show with a Sondheim song. Um, and I have to acknowledge part of the reason I do that is because he has been such an important force in how I feel about just about every day of life. Um, and today, the song I've chosen is called Another Hundred People. It's from the musical Company. And it's going to be, so you're going to hear it sung by Pamela Myers, who is a young actor. She had never done a Broadway show. She auditioned for Company, where she played the part of a single woman trying to find her way in New York City, trying to navigate the dating scene and whatever. Sondheim heard her voice in the audition and went to her and said, Pamela, your voice is so unique, I am going to write a song just for you. The song he wrote, we'll listen to in a couple of minutes. It put Pamela Myers on the map. She was uh, nominated for a Tony Award for her performance in that song. And it's just one of the ways in which Stephen Sondheim did so much to help young artists in their work, in their craft. So as we leave you uh, today, uh, I want to listen to Pamela singing a, a song which also tells us about the genius of Sondheim lyrics. We'll be back tomorrow. We'll talk about what we heard from the Supreme Court and lots of other political issues on the show. In the meantime, take care. Stay healthy. Here's Pamela Myers. Another hundred people just got off of the train and came up through the ground line. Another hundred people just got off of the bus and are looking around at another hundred people who got off of the plane and are looking at us who got off of the train and the plane and the bus maybe yesterday. It's a city of strangers.